Hello, and welcome to the Curious Artist Podcast. This is a show for artists and art lovers where I interview a diverse group of artists in order to get at the deep questions of the art world. In this episode, I interview Anja Not Anja Seeger, otherwise known as La Procette. As an interdisciplinary artist, she uses many mediums such as typewritten poetry, performance art, community collaboration, paper cutting, drawing, crochet, and sound to mirror life. And all her work, improvisation is the uniting force, for it is a split second that interests her most. What wisdom arises to the surface when time is shoved to the side by instinct? Each day, as she creates without preliminary sketches or goals, she conveys the precise essence of the present moment. Common themes explored in her work are the spirit world, the animal psyche, the feral feminine, the unknown, facing fear, mortality, and forging a humorous rebellion against the unacknowledged minutia of daily life. So tell me about yourself, your background, what you do, and what brings you up to this point. So I am an interdisciplinary artist. I work in many different mediums. The one unifying force in all of my art making is that of improv. I am not medium-specific otherwise, but I do have tendencies to work in illustration, paper cutting, poetry, typewriter, performance art, and uh, yeah, anything. That's and cool. then I, I have a background in that I, I received my BFA from the Kansas City Art Institute in 09, and I studied printmaking and creative writing, but I also focused a lot on costume making, film and video, and puppetry. So can you tell me a little bit more about going to school and what was that was like? Sure. Well, when I was 18, I wanted to get as far away from my upbringing of Milwaukee as possible. I felt I needed to individuate myself. And so I went to a city I'd never heard of before, Kansas City, which happens to be in Missouri, not oh, really? Kansas. Yep. And it turned out, I'd never heard of this place, but they have like the one of the top 10 art cities in America wow. and like every Friday the entire not every Friday every Friday once a month like first Friday of the month everybody like the whole town would show up to see art like ordinary people like not arty looking people like like the whole town would just swarm the galleries it was remarkable that's cool how big was the town um it's a little bit smaller than Milwaukee yeah wow. but it's a big metropolitan city that's cool. Yeah. What was it like going to school away from Milwaukee, and what have you brought back to Milwaukee from that? Well, I think I'm inevitably influenced by the spirit of Kansas City. Like, each city has its own frequency that it emits, and I would say, for example, many of the listeners live in Milwaukee. Like, I'd say the frequency of Milwaukee is very strong in filmmaking and surrealism and graphic design. And I'd say, like, the frequency in Kansas City is a lot more wild. I'd say there's a lot of very experimental painting going on down there, lots of installation, and people... People do very strange things there. Like there's like a a shop where the walls are covered in stuffed animals and they sell fashion. But I mean like it's a very it's it's a very different town than, than Milwaukee. I like Milwaukee and I choose to live in Milwaukee, 
But I, I'd say that I'm glad I lived in Kansas City because it, it formed me. Because I'd say, like, and also, like, the school, the art school in whatever city you're in influences the whole town. So I'd say if you were going to, like, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, that's a very intellectual school. You, you read a lot of philosophy and critical theory, and I think people spend a little less time in the studio. Whereas, like, where I went to school in Kansas City, we studied almost no philosophy and critical theory, and we spent almost the entire time in the studio just goofing around, like, all night, every night. So it was more of, like... It had almost more of like a um, working class philosophy of just like working beyond factory hours to do what you love to do. That's what my freshman year teacher always told me to do is like work beyond factory hours, Anja. And that's that's all you need to do. Like, I mean, he also suggested a lot of books and stuff, but I just never read them. I, <laughs> I just uh, I just work hard. That's good. So a couple of things from that. What what exactly is experimental painting? Oh, experimental painting. I mean, like, you know, it's basically at that school, people would say they were a painting major, but they'd end up, like, doing installations or performance art or, like, wrapping dead mice and pieces of felt. And I mean, people didn't do that. But, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, anything goes kind of with a... Uh, with painting, but frequently painting would be worked back into it too. Like you could have a an installation, and all of a sudden there'd be a glob of paint in the middle of it or whatever. But That's yeah, cool. Just not not very traditional, I'd say. I'd say the essence of the school is not traditional. Yeah. That's cool. What led you from there to here? Well, I never thought I would return to Milwaukee when I was eighteen. I was pretty determined to like end up like in New York or Paris being a big big shot artist and I was full of ego and eagerness but as it turned out I got very very sick when I was in college I had a lot of food allergies I got worse and digestive problems and it got to the point where my senior year of college, I was thinking of dropping out or postponing my education so I could check into some sort of like a, um, like I needed to go to like some sort of like a, a live-in place where you could just be ill. I didn't end up doing that, but I really wanted to go to like like a, a nursing home for the food intolerant or, <laughs> or, or something where like they just like feed you broth all day and like you just rest. Like I had adrenal fatigue so I was like tired wow. all the time I mean like I was sick as a dog but um after school I ended up somehow landing a job in a puppet theater like and this was like during the recession when everyone was having problems finding a job like my mm -hmm. friends were applying for jobs at like Target and getting denied like it was like really like you know it was the worst of the worst with the economy and here I was landing a job at a puppet theater like how the heck did I do that but then it turned out like I had no creative freedom at the puppet theater and I was treated like a puppet because I was on the bottom rung of the ladder as far as like the hierarchy of the puppet theater was concerned and it, sorry it was just like no it's funny, funny. it is funny 
it was also very miserable and hard. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I worked there for almost a year until I finally got to the point where I, I like tearfully like drafted a resignation note and like I practiced my words. I I practiced it aloud a few times and then I went into work one day and I was I was going to go up to the head office and and deliver my note and. Like, the, the boss lady came up to me, and she was like, all right, Angela, let's talk about your future. So before I even... <laughs> they were going to let you go? Yeah, they were totally... Like, they were not satisfied with me in any way. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so then I then I was unemployed for a while, and I was very sick, and I didn't have the energy to get another job, and my spirit was broken after doing so poorly at my first job ever, pretty much. And, like, I just thought I didn't have it in me for a job, like, emotionally, physically, anything... And, you know, I just didn't feel like I could keep living on my own. And luckily, my parents could take me in, so I moved in with my parents. And I was very depressed about that. And I lived with my parents for five years. But it turned out to be exactly what I needed to um, take care of my body and also get over myself and humble up a bit and also give me the time to take care of my health and also to experiment without feeling like I have to pay the rent or make ends meet. I was I was taken care of, so I was allowed complete creative freedom in another way. And by being ill, it was my ticket to really finding my voice as an artist at the time. My voice as an artist changes, and I can't really stick to one thing or I feel trapped and ornery and I lash at people and I get mean. But if I, if I remember that I need to, to take a break and being ill was wonderful for that. Like I could just take a break and relax. Like it's so important to just be lackadaisical and do nothing for long periods of time. And and even to feel guilty about it, because we live in, like, this stupid culture where, like, you're supposed to feel guilty if you're not doing anything. Like, it's so important to not do anything, particularly if you're an artist because you're so sensitive and you're absorbing. And you need periods of absorption, and that's that's what living at home gave me. Wow. I feel very um, connected to that story because I feel like I'm right in the middle of that. I have a lot of health issues right now that I'm dealing with. I don't know if I want to go over them on the air, but I do have some... Digestive issues, too. Um, I don't know if they're what yours are because I haven't been, like, diagnosed exactly with them. Mm-hmm. But I've gotten off a lot of foods, and I'm getting a lot better. So I'm, I'm guessing that it's the foods that mm-hmm. are causing a lot of things. And I'm living with my mom right now. So she's helped me to afford the time to be able to get healthy, mm-hmm. which is a godsend. But, but I'm going to get into the um, not feeling guilty about taking time for yourself because that for me that's really hard yeah how, how have you got managed to uh, get through that well I I review it you know I think to myself I compare myself to other areas with other problems where I didn't think I was going to overcome them and I and I think to myself like you know there was a period in my life when I thought I wouldn't ever learn how to ride the bicycle I was 14 years old, and I didn't know how to ride a bicycle, and, like, I didn't trust anyone to teach me, so I had to, like, slowly teach myself in in my own embarrassed sort of way, where I started on, like, a toddler bike, which was close to the ground, so if I fell over, I would be okay. But, I mean, like, that might not be a good example of what... It's not, like, a direct answer to your question, but, like, 
a more direct answer to your question is like, I still feel guilty all the time, every day as a professional artist, because I'm not out there making the loads of money. <laughs> I'm, I'm out there finding what makes me want to live. And I feel like that is a more important quest for me in my life than, like, but I don't mean to judge others either for choosing a route of money. Like, I'm very yeah. privileged in that, like, I am taken care of. Like, I still have someone buying me groceries once a week, even though I pay my own rent. But I think if you're given an opportunity, for goodness sake, take it. Because there's so many people in this world who would like it and don't have it. And if your body is screaming at you to take it easy and take care of yourself... And to absorb things slowly, because digestion is all about absorption, then that's your body's way of saying, it's like, you need to do things very slowly. You need to really consider every move you make, because you have a limited amount of energy, and your energy is precious. You, you put beautiful things into this world, and you have to really choose what those things are going to be. And if you aren't doing every last thing that you want to be doing you also have to have faith that like the moment will arise when it is time for you to do that but sometimes you have to have certain life experiences before you have permission from yourself even to do it and it's hard to even know that that's what you need sometimes like for example i've always wanted to write and illustrate my own books but i'm 29 years old and I've been a professional artist for about 10 years, and I still haven't gotten to the point where I feel like it's time for me to do that. I've experimented with it before, but it didn't feel... I didn't know what I was doing, and I felt like I had other projects I wanted to be working on. And sometimes I feel also like the thing that you want to be working on more than anything else, you don't work on. Perhaps because you have fear of it or what have you, but you make all these other projects for yourself to do first before the project that you want to do most of all. And that's sort of like illustrating and writing my own books. But I also feel like, especially like with books, it's so, I mean, the whole thing is about content. And every time I've ever tried to write like a novel in the past, I've, I've quit. I've tried to write a memoir. I've quit. And it's because I need to be more involved in the living of life at the moment than in the completion of a thought about life. And that's because I'm young. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we've talked a lot about the subject. We, there are a lot more I could delve into here, but I want yeah. to switch the topic yeah. uh, a little bit. So what is your definition of art? My definition of art is a sensory experience that is an, it's an intentional sensory experience that causes you to think or feel something. Nice. I'm going to go back to asking you about yourself yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a list of questions in my long, but I'm just yeah. going to... Forget the list right now. Because yeah. <laughs> another question popping up is you talking about how your your art keeps changing. Yeah. And how you have a hard time identifying as one thing or another thing. Yeah. But you found that you have a central hub of improv. Yeah. How did you find that central hub? 
Um, instinct. I mean, improv is instinct, and it always comes back to instinct with me. I'm, I'm, it just is. Like, I'm not a planner. I, I, I will, the most planning I do is like, I'll have a certain sort of performance that I want to do and a certain parameter for a performance. Like, for example, right now I'm planning advice for the Fringe Festival. And so far, the performance is going to consist of about 20 women typing up different types of advice for people at typewriters in a park under a tent. And there will be different types of advice, like good advice, bad advice, nice advice, like spirit world advice, contradictory advice, where two women give you advice together but they disagree on what you should do like you know but like you know I get in all these kind of intricate planning phases of like what it's going to be but when it gets carried out it's 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 always done in one 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 go I don't repeat anything I don't put down really sketches or anything like when I'm drawing I I just do it when I cut paper I just cut it I don't make plans. I'm much more interested in the in the wisdom of the moment, of the present moment, than in anything planned. And I and I think it evens out because there's a lot of people in this world who are really into planning and I'm I'm here to provide learning how to respond to every I think it always goes back to, to my mom too because she taught me art when I was a kid. She was like an art teacher. And so I was raised by an art teacher and she she always would take me to the zoo with a sketchbook. Oh, nice. And, like, we'd be sketching the monkeys or something. And I'd start drawing, like, an uncertain line. And I'd make a few a few marks. And she'd say, no. No hairy lines. Draw everything in one stroke. Because it's the correct stroke. Just trust that each line you make is the correct line. And that's how I... I think I really learned from that direction that day with the drawing and I've incorporated it into my whole art and life philosophy of just going with the situation. And I'm also, I think I'm a little bit of a, um, adrenaline junkie in that I really like spur of the moment decisions and responding instantaneously when there's big risk. Cool. So big risk, what do you mean by that? Like, you never know how things are going to go with people. Like, for example, I just created this product on um, <laughs> my website. It's a poetry product. but I, 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 Product is such an ugly word. Like, it's a, it's a poetry service. Not that service is really that much of a better word than product. But, like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I'm calling it Love Potion Number 9. And it's, like, based off of that pop song that's, like... It's basically about love potion number nine. Some guy, like, wants to fall in love with someone, so he goes down to Madame Rue, and she's she's an old gypsy with a gold tattoo, and she, uh, she mixes him up a little bottle of love potion number nine, and he, he drinks it, and he couldn't tell if it was day or night. He started kissing everything in sight until he kisses the cop, and then he gets in trouble. And that's... That's the story of the song. So I made Who the sang the song. Um, I think the Clovers, but um, I I made a product. Um, and I and I 
collaborated with a professional love coach who I met online. And her whole thing is like she provides a service for single people to help them manifest love um, when they don't have a mate. Like she helps them create the situation in themselves to welcome positive, good relationships into their life. So that's what she does for a profession. And she asked me if I would write um, poems for her clients when she's done working with them to kind of send them off in the magic of finding love. And so that's where Love Potion Number 9 comes in, this product I've made. And it's a service where I will ask the customer who's seeking love a few questions like, what are you hoping to get from love? What lessons have you learned in your life that you don't want to repeat? What do you want to give to your partner? That sort of thing. And then I call them up and I have a conversation with them about their philosophy of love and life. And then I write them a poem, potion. And I create an affirming poem that is sort of like a prayer or a blessing or um, a self-fulfilling prophecy. But anyways, no matter what it is, it's, it's, it's potent. It's magical. It's love potion number nine. And it will define exactly what that person wants. And it will help it keep perspective in their own minds and bodies of what they want so that they can welcome that into their life. And they can find the love that they want. And I forget the larger point I was going to make with this. But <laughs> it's like, been beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But, like, I just released that today. And, um, oh, yeah. But, like, you know, that's taking a risk. Yeah. It's taking a huge risk. Because then it's, like, putting me in the same category as, like, psychic or something. And I'm not a psychic. I'm just, like, someone who is, like, really into doing emotional work with people as an artist and helping them to become their best possible selves. And this is not something which I would have offered 10 years ago. Like, I feel like I've really needed 10 years of adulthood to really learn how to understand people and develop more empathy. And I've done a lot of writing for people on the street where they come up to me and, like, they need love letters or insult letters or letters from their pets. And I've done thousands of them now. And after doing that, now I feel I'm in the place where I can help people open themselves up to romantic love if they don't have it. And that's 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 what I'm offering with this, but it's also a huge oh. risk because, oh, yeah. you know, like, what if it doesn't work out? There's always a chance, but it's not... I don't think that's going to happen. Like, I say even on my website, like, do not order this unless you're completely prepared to fall in love. Like, you know, like, <laughs> warning. Yeah. I'm serious. <laughs> yeah, you say that with a laugh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, that's great. Like, how much would you charge for something like that? I'm curious. It's like 80, you know 80 bucks, which is way undercharging. It is it. way undercharging. Yeah, yeah I, it should be, I should be charging more like 300 honestly. But, uh, like, you know, it's always hard living in Milwaukee, too. Yeah. Like, you know, have to meet people where they're at. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, well, that brings up my second question I have on the list. <laughs> of what do you think an artist is? An artist is someone who soaks up life, their experience of life, either internal or external life, and they regurgitate it in some form 
whether it's literal, abstracted, metaphorical, or accidental. But artists are conduits who can't stop themselves from receiving and creating messages. Nice. Brings up a whole host of questions for me. So you receive messages and you transmit them. Mm-hmm. Who do you transmit them to is the question. The, the audience. How do you find the right audience for yourself? Well, first of all, your audience has to be you before anyone else. And once you feel like you have a language for what it is, because I think it takes a really long time of just making art just to understand what it is you're making. And you have to get to the point where you feel limited by yourself in a way before you bring it to other people because other people are going to expand you. And this isn't the only way. Like, you can definitely be an artist and make art only for people, too. But I found personally that the first 20 years of my life, I made lots of art every day all for me. And then it got to the point where my art was getting too narcissistic or boring. It was bored. It needed a stretch. And then I started making art for other people out of a joke, out of offering, I can write you a love letter, I can write you a pet letter, I can write you whatever. But I found that by following the joke, following what I thought was like so completely ridiculous, really resonated with people. And most of all, I would say, the most important thing is when finding your audience, you're not looking for an audience. You're looking for fun. How can I have fun doing this? How can I make the best thing I've ever made and have fun doing it? That's what you need to be asking. And then once you've made something that you feel is fun, that is the best thing you've ever made thus far, then you take it and you show people because you can't help it. You have to share It's when you have that, you need to share, then that's when you know it's time to share. But until you feel that pride about what you're doing, it's not time to share. And that's a really hard thing to do, too, especially now in our oversharing culture, is like every time you do something, you feel like you have to share it, even if you don't feel good about it. But I think it's it's a really good idea to feel great about what you're doing and euphoric about what you're doing before you show it with people. Because if you follow your bliss, then you'll have something to show for it and the people who need to see it will see it. But you also have to be willing to expose yourself. And that's uh, that's a very hard thing for most artists. Can you elaborate on the exposing yourself part? Sure. Well... It's it's that same stage of euphoria of like, look at what I made. This is great. But then you show it to your friends and your family and they go, oh, this is great or whatever. But then, you know, you still want to show it to more people because you want to sell it or you want to, you know, be able to make more or you want to expand and, and, and think wider than what you've done. And you have to reach out to other artists and you have to reach out to collectors or whoever you're aiming. I mean, every artist has a different 
sing. Maybe you want to go to art fairs. Maybe you want to be in galleries. Maybe you want to be in magazines. Like, But that process of reaching out is very difficult for a lot of people. But it's, it has to come from the same place as euphoria. Like, I love this and I need more people to see it. That euphoria. I feel like sometimes with my art, I got an idea it could be good. Mm-hmm. And then the art that, that, that I'm most afraid of is the art that's good. Mm. So it, for me, there's a little bit of a paradox there. Is you want to share, share it, but you don't want to share it because it could be good. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I don't know if I'm there yet. Yeah, that's okay. I think it's more important that you're just making art and that you're both challenging and comforting yourself at the same time in the process of making art and just make it and don't analyze it just keep going and when when you get to the point where you feel an internal confidence and an internal euphoria and you have a lot to show for it then you'll have more to review and more to think about it but until you get there you can't be hard on yourself when you're in the creation phase when you're in the creation phase, I feel like I have a lot of anxiety and fear mm. right now, the phase that I'm in right currently. Do you have anything uh, you can talk about to that? Sure. I think I've been teaching art a lot to kids, especially at the age where like, kids start getting self-conscious about drawing, and they're like, oh, I can't draw. Well, I tell them, you know, well, good thing you're not in math class because there's no right or wrong answer here. Like, frankly, I want to see you draw the ugliest drawing I've ever seen. I don't want to see anything beautiful coming from you. If you make something beautiful, I'm going to rip it up. I want you to make me only ugly art today because that's what I want to see. I want to see you having fun. I want to see you making art. I don't want to see anything great. Like, go home if you're going to make a masterpiece. I don't want to see that. Like, just make something, anything. And so frequently, when they open themselves up to making something ugly, they make something beautiful. They make something great. They make something that they would have felt was bad before or would be judged. And you just got to turn off that judging part of your brain. You got to do some blind contour drawings. You got to get a big roll of paper, unveil it on the floor, and, and rough it up with sketches, not knowing what is. I mean, if. I mean, that's why I'm improv. Everything I do feels like blind contour drawing, even if I'm looking at it. Like, every performance is like a blind contour drawing because I don't know where it's going. And that's that's my passion is improv. Like, I'm very unattached to results. And that's, like, another thing which they teach you in art school, or at least the art school I went to, is, like, you know you're on your way when you can spend, like two weeks on a project, day and night. And if it gets to the point where you get to the end and you're like, I don't like this, you have to be willing to throw it away or get rid of it. Because it's not, it's not even, it's not even important what you made. It's important what you experienced while making it more than anything else. That's deep. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So here's another question I like to ask is what do you think the role of art and artists are in today's society? Because I feel like today's society is more fractured than ever. Yeah. And, yeah. 
Well, I I was having this conversation with an activist the other day in that like he was, you know, saying things like he's pessimistic. He thinks that like, you know, the world is going downhill, like, you know, climate change is going to kill us all and like like there's no point to having groups that just meet and talk about environmental issues like like people need to be doing action now. And then he asked me, Anja, what do you think of all this as a young person? And I told him, you know, I feel very sad. I feel very sad and afraid that like both you feel that the world is dying and I sometimes worry that the world is dying. But I honestly don't know if it's if it's going to die or not. And it's not up to me to decide that. I do the best I can to live environmentally friendly as possible, but in the end it's not up to me. And I'm not an activist. I am an artist. Um, my role is to support the activists and to support the non-activists. My role as an artist is a societal healer. I'm here to give people a sense of why they're alive in the first place to to give them joy at the at the beauty and sorrow of life because even sorrow is a joyful thing and my job is to respond to life and to show it to mirror it back at people so they recognize it and they see that they're not alone and by seeing that they're not alone they in turn feel connected and that connection gives them a feeling that they can make a difference and that they can help each other and that there is a community like I exist as an artist to show people community to show people internal community like not not like literal external community necessarily but like the community that we are all a part of in our souls like we all relate to the dream world or we all relate to strange desires for rabbits and 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 cake <laughs> and like if i bring us all in closer to the internal rabbit and cake and to the humor then people will see in each other the same thing or at least resonate in those desires and the problem with a fractured society is people are so lonely they don't trust each other they're afraid of each other and as an artist especially an artist who works a lot in the community with performance i feel my role is to create connection beautiful yeah so how did you get into doing performance art? Inherently, instinctually, improvisationally. I mean, like, when I go to my parents' house, there's, like, videotapes of me when I'm four years old doing performance art at the piano. And it's very performance arty. Like, I'm playing, like, dissonant notes. Like, I don't know how to play the piano, but I'm doing it anyways, and I'm singing songs about 
the mama bear, the papa bear, the brother bear, the daughter bear. I mean, like, it's very performance already. Like, I could, like, do that performance in a performance art venue today and it would fit right in with the dissonant piano. And I don't know, I've just always had that instinct. Like, I, like my favorite thing to do as a kid was to play dress up. So, how have you kept a hold of that into into the adulthood? When um, well, I I still dress up eccentrically a lot. I was still doing Halloween as a as a freshman in college. I went trick or treating with my dorm mate. Um, I don't know, but like, I just uh, because I played my own rules. I still I still dress up weird. I still make a lot of jokes and I just find myself in situations like I just recently started acting in a film because I just can't stay away from it. If someone offers it to me, I jump in it. I just need to be there. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. What but film? Uh, um, did you say anything? Sure. I'm I'm performing in a production called well here's the thing there's a movie last year that came out called Tomorrowland and this movie is also called Tomorrowland but it might be called something else because there was a big box movie called Tomorrowland but this is like a movie based off of the poetry of Lisa Samuels who's a poet living in New Zealand and New Zealand is this place also known as Tomorrowland because around the international dateline so it's always tomorrow there compared to the rest of the world mm-hmm. but anyways it's a it's a it's a trans-historical epic poem, and it has sort of a plot, but it sort of also doesn't have a plot, but I'm acting in it, and so I'm I'm excited to do that. It's, like, directed by Wes Tank, and yeah. I, it's cool. Yeah, it's going to be cool. right up your alley. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, so I've got a question that, I don't know if it's a good question or not, but I'm just going to ask it because yeah. it just popped in my head. Yeah. How do you keep your, your identity so fluid? Because it feels like right now I've got my identity as a visual artist. Yeah. But I feel like called to do words and writing. Yeah. So I, it, so much of my identity, I feel like my identity is wrapped up in visual art. Yeah. That it's hard to transition yeah. to, to various different things. Okay. So. Um, that wasn't a good question. <laughs> no, it's fine. I think going from one thing to another is a hard thing. Like, like I'm really trying to get out of doing so much public typewriter stuff and doing more illustration or, or podcasting or, or, or something, anything. But it's hard, be, especially, like, when you have, like, clientele buildup or, like, a kind of, a, like, a reputation. You just keep doing it. But it's also on a deeper level, like... When you're ready to do something, you'll do it. Mm-hmm. It's like I was a four-year-old who still drank milk out of a baby bottle. And, like, I, I mean, I'm a late bloomer. I've always been a late bloomer. Like, my dad will tell you I'm a late bloomer. But I'm, I used to go around everywhere with, with milk and a baby bottle. And adults would be like, Andre, when are you going to get rid of that baby bottle of milk? Because I was like four years old, and I would tell them, when I'm ready to get rid of the baby bottle full of milk, I will do it. Which is so precocious. (laughs) Yeah, and um, 
that's the same attitude you have to have with changing art because it's not different like writing and art is the same thing it's just a different language but it's still the same instinct it's still the same thing that you're doing it's just stupid that we we make everything so demarcated yeah it's the same thing yeah i feel like that too yeah but at the same time and at the same time i'm trying not to say but being building up an audience and being known for something Mm -hmm. it seems like to me in our society that's how you're able to build to survive as an artist Mm -hmm. maybe i'm just overthinking things it is and it isn't. I think if you want to do something, ultimately, that desire will set you aside more than what you're making. Mm-hmm. It's always it always comes down to the 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 intention of the person and and the personality of the person. Like every art that sells is a bit of that artist's personality. And if your personality tells you I need to do more than one thing, yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard of puttylike.com? What? Puttylike? No. You would like that. It's a uh, this is an aside. <laughs> yeah, but it's probably going to go to the podcast. It's a uh, uh, she uh, uh, she's I mean Emily Wapnick. She uh multipotentialites. I just joined the putty tribe. So it's a group of people that are multipotential. You know what a multipotentialite is? Oh, people who are good at more than one thing. Yeah. Okay. So you would like that. You yeah. should look into that. Okay. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I'd like that. Yeah, I know. They opened up um, membership for a day, and I jumped at the chance to join. I haven't really done much with it yet, but <laughs> there are a lot of people that are, like, similar to us, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's an online community. Where was I? Oh, okay. Back to the thread of the conversation. <laughs> yeah. What is the why behind what you do? What is the why behind what I do? I think the why of what I do is um, why am I in this body? Like, why am I not in, in your body or their body or his body? Like, is this life? Like, I seem to be able to smell and hear things. Sometimes I feel like my head is above my body. Sometimes I feel disconnected from my body. And when I'm in my body, all these things are happening to me. And I'm just trying to make sense of it. It's so surreal. Like, how am I even alive? Life life is, is as strange as dreaming. And I just want to make sense of it. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> What are some books that, that inspire you artistically? Well, I um, right now I'm reading The Typewriter Revolution, which is all about other typewriter poets and all of the resurgence of people owning typewriters. It's wow. pretty fascinating. Yeah, let's yeah. get into that. Yeah, and I also really like... Um, I Who think wrote it? Um, I can't remember the name of the author, but if you look up the typewriter revolution, okay. you'll see it. And then I think, like, ultimately, like, perhaps the most important thing I ever read was um, The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell, oh. which is all about following your bliss and going down your your life path. And it's just, it just makes you holler with 
joy. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's cool. So why why did you start with the typewriter? I know you're getting more away from it. What yeah. What drew you to it originally? Well, I mean, I'll always come back to it, too. It just It's a nice clacking physicality. Um, it's... Um, it's different than writing with a pencil where you can erase. It's different than writing with a pen. It's more like writing with a pen is more flowing. Writing with a typewriter is similar to a pen in that like you can't make mistakes. You can't go back. There's no delete button. But it's sort of like a computer in that like everything is final at the same time. It's a risk. It's another it's another risk of the moment thing. It's an improv. Like typewriter is improv. Like there's no going back Every line you draw, every word you say has to be the correct word. And so you have to get really correct in the moment of conducting your manuscript. Okay, so I noticed here you have a shirt with some Jewish lettering. Are you Jewish? <laughs> no. People ask me that all the time. I'm just curious because, I mean... <laughs> well, actually, I've had this shirt since I was eight years old. Wow. When my grandparents went to Jerusalem and they brought me back this shirt and somehow I could still fit into it as wow. a 29 year old. Yeah, well, the reason why I'm asking that question is because a lot of things seem really spiritual and um, I, uh, I'm i technically Jewish. So, oh, I mean, I wasn't raised Jewish, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. So I was just wondering if no, what people, your spiritual people, background is. People, people always think I'm Jewish. Like, I have curly hair and, like, I'm very, like, like, I love telling stories, and, like, I'm very expressive, but I'm I'm a quarter Italian, which is Mediterranean, but, like, um, I guess, well, technically, my dad just did, like, the, the DNA thing where you swab a Q-tip in your mouth, mm-hmm. and you send it off to the lab, and he found out that he's 3% Jewish. Oh, well. So I'm, I am one and a half percent Jewish. Well, it has been your mother's side to count. Really? <laughs> oh, 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 oh. So then I'm not Jewish. <laughs> no, because, like, the Orthodox Jews, like, if, it's, if my mom wasn't Jewish, I would not be considered Jewish mm. to them unless I converted. Wow. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah, my mom also took the test, and she did not come out as Jewish. So. What did she come out as? Neanderthal. As did my dad. Oh my god, that's funny. <laughs> well, pretty much anyone who has European background is Neanderthal. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So just, <laughs> the reason why I was asking <laughs> Neanderthal, that is really interesting. Uh, the reason why I was asking is because I was cons- your, your art seems very spiritual to me, and you seem like yeah. a very spiritual person. I was wondering what are your background in that, yeah. in that respect. Well, I'm, um, I was raised Catholic. I'm not Catholic. I'm not Christian, but I'm also, I'm not atheist. Mm-hmm. I, I I would say, like, the closest thing that I am is, like, I'm agnostic. Oh, my God, I'm agnostic, too. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I've met this, like, openly agnostic. Yeah, I'm, well, I mean, like, I'd say I'm agnostic in the mind that, like, I trust that something is there, but I don't think it's... Knowable. Yeah, I don't think it's, like, definable with yeah. our little human brain yeah. which is why I'm an artist yeah I feel like I'm similar in that respect yeah. too yeah like the reason why I'm called shows a curious artist because I believe in living in the question mm-hmm. like leaning into the discomfort and the not knowing so yeah so that's that's cool yeah I've been agnostic my whole life I can't really yeah. put a 
line and say, I believe this definitely. Yeah. Which is like, it's hard in the society where everyone believes something definite, it seems like. I think we live in a pretty agnostic society sometimes. That's true. Yeah. But it is a little more rare for people to say that they are agnostic. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, back on track. <laughs> so we're talking about books earlier and typewriters. I sort of got off that subject randomly. So what are some blogs that you read? I really like... Sometimes I get like these these emails from Dasha Kelly, a local writer, oh. and they just come to the inbox and it's like a little little bit of writing. I, I like following um, like Adam Carr's Milwaukeeer Than Thou photographs of of Milwaukee. I don't know. I, I blogs per se. I don't read. I don't like reading on the computer. Mm-hmm. Like it irritates my eyes. But I don't know. I just like whatever comes along. Cool. I just thought some people are, have opinions about that. Yeah, I don't really. Okay, yeah. yeah. Maybe I should toss that question out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you stay articul- artistically productive? Stay on task artistically. Well, before I go to bed, I look at my schedule. I I look like a week ahead. I look for this week. I look at tomorrow. And I write down everything which I want to do, and then I divide it into the days that I think would be most logical to get it done. So, like, if I'm going to New Orleans on Thursday, which I am, like, yeah, uh, yeah, then I will think of, like, well, I need to pack, I need to do whatever. And the the artistic practice also comes into that. I usually try and do something creative on my to-do list every day. Yeah. I don't know. I make a lot of to-do lists. That's nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm a productivity nerd a little bit. Uh-huh. So I, I, I feel like productivity is a philosophy or a day, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. But what, what is a productivity nerd in your mind? Well, I get into a lot of different productivity systems. Oh. Like GTD and other stuff. Getting things done. The okay. David Allen method. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about all this. Yeah, it's like... It, for me, productivity is, is the why behind what you do is more important than what you actually do. Mm. So. I can relate to that. Like, you have to keep busy. Yeah, it's yeah. not about keeping busy. It's about making meaningful progress in the goals that you want to achieve mm. from what the literature I've read is. I read a lot of books and podcasts about it, so. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I just make stuff and then make it happen. I know. I overthink <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where we went around that rabbit hole. So it's also like we're wrapping up a little bit here. Sure. Because I've run out of my, almost run out of my list of questions. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. So where can people find you online if they want to follow you or support you? Sure. I have two websites. I have my visual art website, which is anja.anja.com. Um, that's A-N-J-A-N-O-T-A-N-J-A.com. And then La Prosette is where you can order a letter from me or a poem or you can see pictures of me. You can see pictures of my my poems and letters that I've written for other people and my adventures. That's L-A-P-R-O-S-E-T-T-E dot com. Now, I'm also on Facebook, Anjana, Anja Seeger, and La Prosette. And I also have a radio show which airs on Wednesday mornings on 104.1 FM or riverrestradio.com where you can stream it 
live or on SoundCloud, and the name of the show is The Subtle Forces. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to backtrack as yeah. from the last question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you get the name Naranja? I, I, I know you yeah. gave it to yourself, but like, what's, right. the, what's the inspiration behind that? Um, it had to do with one time I was writing a book, and I was writing for hours and hours, and then I stopped writing, and then I read back what I wrote. And I didn't even like remember reading some passage, writing some passages, but as I wrote... Okay. I didn't even remember writing some passages that I was reading, but they were so good, I couldn't believe that they had been written, and I didn't even really remember writing them, and it was as if someone else had written them, even though I had written the whole thing for hours. And I was like, who wrote this? Not Anja. And I feel like when I make art, I'm not Anja, I'm anyone I need to be. Because I'm a very limited, fearful person myself. So. That's cool. Yeah. That brings me to the last question that I ask all my guests. The name of the podcast is The Curious Artist. What are you artistically curious about right now? I'm curious about what happens when people who aren't experts suddenly become experts what do you mean by that like that's what i'm doing with like my upcoming advice performance i'm going to have a bunch of people who aren't are not like you know therapists or anything i want to have them set up like they are therapists and then people will come up to them and ask them questions like wise people and i'm i just it's it always comes down as an artist i'm curious about the potential of the present moment and the potential of situations that's never existed before. I'm, I'm curious about what happens when you don't plan something. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you would like to support the Curious Artist Show, please share it with a friend or someone you think would enjoy it. Thanks again. Have a nice day.